Welcome to my mom's podcast. Hi, I'm Marisa Calderon, and you're listening to the Early Childhood Journeys podcast. I'm capturing the early childhood journeys of educators, including discussions and strategies on best practices for children, birth through third grade, and sharing them here for you. All right, so welcome, everybody. Um, This is a holiday episode. So for today's Early Childhood Journeys podcast, um, this is going to be airing out the week of Christmas. So if you are celebrating Christmas, I hope you're recovering. Um, when, by the time you hear this, um, happy Hanukkah also for all of you who celebrate um, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. My preschooler just reminded me that I need to put out something for Kwanzaa. So thanks to PBS for exposing her to Kwanzaa because um, she, she has no clue what, what it is, but she knows that I need to put something out. Or <laughs> So my guest today is the witty and intelligent and the lovely Amy Corvo. Welcome, Amy. Thank you, Marisa. So we are at the City Hall building today, and I asked Amy to do me a huge favor to capture her journey and be on my podcast. Um, I think it's a good timing because you've been through a lot of changes this year, I feel like. Um, So Amy, tell me about what you do and your title and what that looks like. Well, Marisa, I am currently the Deputy Human Services Director over education for the city of Phoenix. And so that means my primary responsibility is to oversee the Head Start Birth to Five program here for the city of Phoenix. We're the largest um, grantee uh, in Arizona. And so we serve about 4,500 children birth to five and their families. Wow. So you must have an amazing group of people that work with you. Yes. So we're uh, unique uh, as a head start because we have um, contracts and uh, delegate partners to do the work. So we have four early childcare partners and then we have um, nine delegate partners. Seven of them are school districts and two nonprofits who do the work. And then we hire also um, home visitors Mm -hmm. who do home visiting part of our program. And then we here at the city actually hire the caseworkers who do the comprehensive services for families, which you know is an important part of Head Start. Yeah, that wraparound uh, piece, I feel like. Um, For some of the listeners that aren't familiar with Head Start, I'm going to put their website on the show notes and I'll post that out as well on our social media um, pages so that you can learn more about Head Start. Um, I also want to mention for our parents, what do you think uh, is the biggest misconception of Head Start for parents that don't know what it is or you know, mildly have heard about it? What would you say is a misconception about the services? I, I think one of the most important things to know is that Head Start, I think, has always historically been about children and kids. We think of kids first, but Head Start is unique because it looks at the whole family, which makes us different. So when you go through the work to say, yes, I want my child to be in Head Start, 
one of the things that we provide is support to the family. We want them to be stable. Stable families then provide stable environments in which children can thrive and be ready for school. So we're not just about the children, but we're also asking the family to make a commitment to their family to stabilize them and provide an enriching environment to kids. I was um, talking to one of my colleagues and we were talking about the stat. Um, I, I can't reference the the resource from it, but it was when Head Start services a child, it's like it more than doubles the services of the other children around uh, their family or in their family to um, to do well academically, to do well socially, emotionally, like it, it um, affects everybody. Yes, because we invest in the family, yes. in the parents or the family, wherever that child is residing. Um, we help families get jobs to have more secure housing um, to some, you know, families have struggles and stressors and they need some caseworking support, some referral, mm -hmm. mental health services. Sometimes families themselves need medical care. Yeah. Um, so we talk about this two generational model. Right. So if we can help and secure the family, then all of the children are going to thrive in that environment. Yeah. And we see that in the longitudinal data um, around Head Start more than anything. Yeah. I, I, I have a, a little what I call a little rinconcito, a little corner in my heart for Head Start because long, long time ago I was involved um, on a policy council. Um, so I remember those moments and how informative and just how helpful it was just for me as a parent at the time as well yeah. that involvement now going back kind of backtracking here i'm thinking about you know you have this role here at the city of phoenix with the head start but take me back to where you were before this well <laughs> i'm gonna make you say it <laughs> would you want me to go i just want to i'm gonna because i want to talk about how i my connection to you before even that position oh my well i'll tell you i'm not maybe some people don't know this about me is that i actually started my career in head start oh really as a home that visitor was, that was mm -hmm. going to be one of my questions what was your yeah. well what was your first I job, worked for but... Maricopa County. Well, I didn't go to college here in Arizona. Right. When I returned um, to Arizona, I worked for Maricopa County Head Start as a home visitor and then as a site director in a teacher in a classroom. And then I, uh, which I love that job, by the way. Yeah. And one of my best friends sometimes would remind me saying, you loved Head Start. Why did you ever leave? Yeah. But you know, in those days, teachers were making seventeen thousand or $17,000 yeah. a year, right? Um, but I did finish my graduate work and went to work for a tribal community for five years. Um, then I left there uh, to go and work um, for the, a city municipality organizing their community education for families. And then when I left there, I went to the East Valley Institute of Technology, which is, I think, yes. where we met Marisa, right? Yes. I was um, the director of their early childhood program there. So I would work with teens who wanted, expressed an interest in early childhood as a field. And we had a wonderful collaborative partnership with Maricopa County Head Start yeah. right there on campus got to work with teen moms yeah and from there I went to the Department of Education um, where I originally went as a kindergarten monitor yeah uh, and then we um, 
got full day kindergarten and it became just part of our system, our K-12 system for a brief minute there under Governor Napolitano. And I stayed on at the department and um, worked in special ed and then was promoted to the deputy associate superintendent of early childhood and the Head Start collab director yeah. while at ADE. Yeah, it's just been a, an amazing journey for you and I wanted to capture it. Um, I think I want to capture it especially because I think when you're at these positions at this level, it's nice to know the background of the person and know that they have your best interests at heart, you know, as a as a parent, as an advocate, um, an early childhood provider, that we have these amazing people in these positions. And I wanted to highlight that and know that they've gone up um, through the field and done amazing work that um, probably wasn't such, um, it was a lot of grit doing it. I'm sure it was. So, oh, you're, I know we're in Amy's office right now and her, her of course, her phone is ringing. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll let it, we'll hopefully can go to voicemail. Um, but I wanted to go back to say where you were previously, like, how did you know you wanted to be in this field? Did you always know that? Yes. So when I was in high school, I went, um, actually chose my college based on, I thought I wanted to be a pharmacist. Oh, really? But I worked in a childcare center and when I was in high school and I loved it. And there was a woman there, her name was Nancy Rosenthal. She was uh, my mentor. She taught me, I worked in a two year old classroom with toddlers and she taught me so much about the field. And those things that you may not know that you're learning because they you don't learn them from a book yes. right that you how to put your back against the wall so that you can observe all the children what that private time during diaper changing mm -hmm. that you are having with that child. Some of people are like, oh gosh, I hate diaper changing in the <laughs> childcare. You know, it's it's very routine. It's yes. like, oh yeah, you start one, you take a breath uh -huh. and you start again. Yes. But it was really those private moments. And she used to teach me how to monitor and observe the children while sweeping the floor. And it's those kind of things that she taught me. Um, that were important, but I did think, okay, I'm gonna, you know, my mom was a teacher and my whole family yeah. was, were not teachers necessarily. And I thought I'm gonna go to, away to school and be a pharmacist. And it was my first semester in pharmacy school that I realized this isn't for me. <laughs> and um, I walked out of my lab and right over to the community, the education building, which I went to Creighton University, which is a very intense medical and a very one little tiny building for education where of there course. were only 23 students studying wow. education there. Um, and that's, you know, I sort of always had wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I was just ignoring it, I guess, for the most part. So do you remember your first paid teaching like or job? maybe um, as an assistant or just with working with children and families? Well, I think my first paid job would be the child care center when I was in high school. Okay. But while I was in college, I did a lot of gigs with yes. kids yeah. that I wasn't paid for, right? Like yeah. working at churches and those kind of things. But really, I think my, after college, my first real teaching job was um, at Head Start, was at oh. the Maricopa County Head Start um, as a home visitor and then as a teacher. Amazing. Yeah. It was, I remember those weeks of the transition when you get your own classroom in. In early childhood, it's really different. And I was a 
uh, trained special ed teacher for children with disabilities. Um, but I had done my student teaching in first grade and in second grade, done some work at Boys Town Institute, just very different experiences than early childhood. Yeah, yeah. And I remember um, the woman's name, her name was Marilyn. She was my coordinator in Head Start and she wouldn't let my classroom open on time because it wasn't ready like the physical environment wasn't ready I didn't know how to set up a an early learning classroom myself Mm. so she came and helped and my mom and some other friends came and helped over a weekend so that she could come early in the morning and sign off saying that we could start school on time it was in the Washington Community Center in Mesa was my classroom Wow. That's amazing, though, that you had all of that support to help you Mm -hmm. switch that, Mm -hmm. switch that classroom around to get it ready. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. I never knew that. See, new stuff for all of our listeners. Now, thinking back, what would be, you know, some some advice? I always say we have um, right now our field. Well, I feel like it's it goes in these waves, but in early childhood, it can be really heavy work, and perhaps we have some entry uh, folks that are coming in our field. Um, what would be some advice for them? I think I would say, especially if you're a new person coming into early childhood, when I think back um, on my own journey, I think one of the things that has helped me is you take one thing at a time and focus on it and try to make it better. You're not going to be able to do everything well at the same time. Look, I couldn't even put a classroom together. And then they're like, oh, an assessment and oh, your lesson plans. So one year I'm like, I'm really going to focus on having great lesson plans. Then I'm going to build into what does assessment mean and really focus on learning and understanding those connections. And then I would go to professional development and reflect on what I learned there and then try to implement things just one thing at a time and get really good at it. Mm -hmm. You have to do all of the other things, but really having a focus every year, like a personal goal for yourself about I'm going to this year really focus on taking good quality data, right? Um, Because there's so many things going on in a classroom, uh, so many decisions, and you're thinking about who can do what and who can jump um, and who can, you know, skip and who who has fine motor skills. And then when I was a first grade teacher, I'd be driving home at night thinking, oh, my gosh, who didn't I not spend (laughs) – quality yeah. time every yeah. day you know right they say you have to spend quality time with every child every day and who can read and did I check those sight words and you know all of those things but I think underlying that was okay this year I'm going to focus on doing this well to help build that toolbox we always talk about teachers having toolboxes which is is kind of true right yeah. we have all these effective instructional strategies and things and they're not going to work for every child every time so you have to build that and you have to practice it and get good at it and I think that one of the things that I would recommend is you take a deep breath about that and and you know give yourself um time to develop those skills it's going to take time for you to do that and I know you're you feel pressure because these children are with you for such a short amount of time but you're hoping you're doing what's right for them while they're there and preparing them for who's going to get them next, 
right? But I think that that is one of the things where we're talking about teacher wellness yeah. right now. We hear yeah. a lot of that is just, I used to take a lot of time to reflect on my way to work and then on my way home so that I never taught in the same community where I lived. So I had quite a commute yeah, typically, yeah. right? And yeah. in Phoenix, that's most likely, you're gonna have at sure. least probably a 30 minute commute. Um, and that was the time that I used to to plan, to reflect on my practice. What didn't go well today? What could I try again? I'm not gonna throw that skill away just because it wasn't successful that one time. I think too, um, I feel like teachers have this uh, idea that they have to know it all, like from jump, you have to know it all from day one. And I have been saying, you just need to know how to learn it. You know, how you, you recognize it and go from there. Now let's explore and now let's investigate about it so that we can get competent with that and then start scaffolding, start building on that. Yeah. Um, learning it, like just the piece about when you feel overwhelmed, well, ask for some help. I was going to ask you, who did you have um, in those in those times that you were able to lean on, or um, a mentor, another mentor, perhaps? Do you remember how you got through those times when you weren't feeling that you really were knowledgeable about something? You know, who was my teaching assistant? I think was really important especially in those first years, it's my first five years of teaching. I had yeah. the same teaching assistant for, I want to say, maybe four of those years. Like the first year I was a mess, right? I think most teachers yes. are, I would go home every day thinking, oh my gosh, I've only signed a year contract, right? And then you end up, before you know it, it's five years. Yeah. But I, my first year was a mess. But my second year, I got a teaching assistant who was really important to my journey. Because even though she may not have gone to professional development, she was there to help me digest those things, to say, let's try this. She was eager to hear how we could work together in a classroom. And her name was Veronica Rail. And I used to say, you know, with behavior, do you want to have quality time with Miss Veronica? Because that was, you know. <laughs> That's what she knew. I love how you remember everybody's names. That's amazing. You yeah. have that memory. I, I, I cannot remember everybody's names. I feel bad if I leave somebody out. Melissa, um, can I, what you were talking about, though, reminded me of... Um, I, teachers needing to know everything. And I come from that where you think about, I shouldn't be doing anything for a child that they can do for themselves, mm. right? And so um, I think that's important that teachers know they shouldn't yeah. be knowing everything, that it's okay to say to kids, let's discover that together. Thank I you. don't know what the answer is, right? And and I think that's a lot about control. And if I used to, when, and part of my yes. career, I was, you know, worked as, uh, to support teachers um, in career ladder and in my work with the department and monitoring and what that is and how to help people to give ownership back to the children. And that's yes. really how I feel like you're building a community of learners, right? To talk about that. As my role as a teacher is to help them understand you are an important part of what is going on in this classroom. We are a community of learners and use that language with them. Teach them what does that mean? And it's okay, I'm not gonna know the answers. Let's discover that together. Or I 
you know, telling students, I appreciate that question. What great inquiry and saying that to children and then discovering that. Um, and I think that that, that's yeah. important to, for teachers to know as yes, well. thank you. They do not need to know everything. And it is okay to be vulnerable in that situation. Yes. Give ownership back to the children. Yes. Yeah, thank you. I, I think about, too, is that um, partnering up with parents. I had a conversation in the previous podcast with uh, Dr. Karen Ortiz, and we talked a lot about the power of that parents have and becoming collaborators with them, partnering up with your parents and uh, for the support of the child. And, you know, also communicating with your parents as well, because they might have some additional information about your student, right? I mean, they're they're really the expert on that child, the parent is, and they can provide some additional um, feedback for your your lesson plans to connect with that child too, if you're struggling. so with that, I want to also ask how, how did you or how are you managing your professional personal life right now with your position? How are you balancing that? Because teachers, I, I always try to remind them they have to find some balance as well, that teacher wellness piece. So what are you doing? I actually think that I'm, and I'm good at this <laughs> because I do um, work very hard when I'm working. And I'll tell you, there are days that I don't leave here till it's, I come when it's dark, I leave when it's dark. Sometimes I work on Saturdays, but I do plan times. You know, I love to travel. So I do plan some vacations. I'm the type of person who likes to have a vacation plan, something to look forward to. Um, But I do utilize, like I go to the gym, I go for walks around my neighborhood just to, to decompress, especially when it's so nice out right yes, now. It's a, it is finally, nice. it's starting to be cool. And I was saying, um, I said, I hope everyone's taking advantage. And if you can, have access outside. Do your lessons outside if you can. Yeah. Everything right now. Take advantage of that. Um, so my last one is, any advice to parents that are starting in your program? Um, I have a lot going on in my mind right now about our like you just were mentioning before about parents and how to help them understand they're a partner in this um you know as a teacher i think i so i've had this experience how do you engage families Mm -hmm. and a lot of times when you're in when you are a teacher sometimes we focus on let's just talk about parent teacher conferences for a mm, second yeah right and no it's not the end all be all of family yeah. um, building partnerships but it's a good opportunity and when I was in schools a lot of times we would focus on those parents who didn't come right how many how many did you out of your 20 children you know how many showed up and I think that there's a great thing in in really spending some quality time with those families who do show up yeah. and to say, yeah, we may not have gotten everybody there, but this is what it is. And I find that that assessment tool, like we utilize Teaching Strategies yeah. Gold, is such a wonderful opportunity. And the technology that's available now is amazing because parents see their children doing things every day. But what I don't think they know is or have is someone to sit down and say, do you see this? I want you to watch the sequence. 
Now let me tell you from my perspective what I saw there. I saw your child problem solving. I saw them communicating with another child. I saw them expressing themselves. I used them, look at the language they used or whatever that is so they don't look at things and take the time to just say, oh wow, look at how my child is developing. And I think that's a, an opportunity for teachers to be able to support them. Yes, I've never met a parent who did not want better for their children than what they had, right? So we just have to develop that belief in every teacher to, to that families are doing the best they can. They're not always gonna meet our expectations. Right. They may not, but believe me when they never are they going to say that they don't want what's best for their children. Yes, and what we've the term that we've used is allies. We want we want to be allies mm -hmm. when it comes to um, the education of your child. You want to become allies, want to partner up. Um, so that they see the teacher as an ally and not someone that's just going to perhaps report a negative. And, and we're always going to have those parents who just their stressors are so, or their priorities or something else is going to be in their way. Yeah. Um, and we're going to continue to work with them. But I do find that there's great um, opportunity there in having peers, right? We have a policy council here and our families come and they talk to us, they give us guidance and it's an opportunity for me to say these are great things, tell others about this and to go and to do that and we see these things happening in parts of the community where parents are talking to other parents. Yeah. Um, you know, this year for the first time I brought two parents um, to uh, Washington, D.C. with me to wow. do visits um, with some other Head Starts from around the state. Um, we brought a contingency of families and help us do those visits um, with congressional leadership to talk about the importance of Head Start, to help them tell their story. And yeah. in this year, Head Start has really been focused on the voice of the family. What is that looking like? Mm -hmm. um, and also... We know we can't force parents into opportunities, but we have to make sure they understand what those opportunities are. So for us, we're just, I just came out of a meeting about community needs assessment and how do we really ask families, what do you need? What does that look like? Is that a survey? What does that interview system look like? All of those kinds of things. So I think that there's families have an opportunity to help provide us with feedback. You know, I work in an entity, a government entity, but families could help explain to us what are the best ways. Yeah. And so having policy councils or parent groups and things to give voice to that is really important as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's something that we, we've been talking about too, the, the power of parents. Um, and so. we used to spend a lot of time asking parents to help us with lesson planning. But I found that that is less, parents sometimes feel less and less comfortable because I've had parents say, well, don't you know? Aren't you yeah, the teacher? The so um, I think that there's an opportunity to explain to them what is school is like now, right? About yes, these are sure. the ways that we're trying to help. School is all about the evolution of your child's thinking yeah, now, yeah. right? And how are we doing that and explaining that to them and giving them ways that they can do that at home.
and whether, you know, many lesson plans are around standards now and mm -hmm. there's maybe a little bit less uh, flexibility than there was before for parents to have input into that, but how they can support that is really important information for them. And what are those things that they have in their home that help support what their child is learning at school? Yeah. I think those are some of the most important things around things that we can do for families, especially in our world, birth to five. Because if we can have that, how then can we help them to continue um, as they move into K3 and, and yeah. beyond? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So with that, I'm going to transition you out because I know you have to get going. Um, just a couple of things about you. We were talking about how this episode is going to be airing uh, during the week of Christmas, and I wanted you to share perhaps a holiday memory in your early childhood um, during this time. Do you, do you recall something um, that stands out that you enjoyed during this time as, a, as you were a child? Well, I grew up in New Hampshire, in Manchester, New Hampshire. So my Christmas memories uh, are cold. <laughs> I remember, um, you know, having to bundle up because in those days there we really had, you know, snow that would come in the fall and it would stay until we had a true spring thaw. Yes. I don't think those yes. things happened. You guys had seasons. It, we, it had seasons <laughs> and we had a whole winter. Yes. So that song, Marshmallow World, like that's what I remember. Um, but one year my sister and I got sleds and the neighbor, we used to live on a hill and we were sliding down and my dad had planted a peach tree. And it was just a little seedling, right? Uh -huh. And we we just just went right <laughs> over that thing and just crushed it. And my dad was really upset about it. Um, That's he really great. babied that little peach tree that was, you know, gonna grow, and we just plowed right over it. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Did it? Did you guys have to replant it? Did it recover? Uh, no, it didn't, <laughs> didn't recover. <laughs> Um, what about um, some favorite holiday traditions with your family? Do you remember those in your early childhood? Well, in my early childhood, we always opened gifts um, on Christmas Eve okay. from each other. So, and then we too. we opened Santa came and still does in our family. Um, Santa comes on Christmas morning, and we didn't wrap. Our Santa gifts. I've heard that. I yes. was trying to convince my husband about that. <laughs> yes. So that we were not I set think up. depending yeah. on where you grew up, maybe, that yeah. that depends. But we don't wrap Santa gifts. He just drops them off. That's right. He <laughs> doesn't have time for all that wrapping. <laughs> well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Is there any last um, comments or tips or anything you want to say before I let you go? Um, no, but this was a little easier than I imagined it to Good. be. Good. So, <laughs> it's nice to see you. Always, always nice to see you too. Thanks for listening.